Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Captured is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. And for this episode of My Time Capsule, I have to tell you that I'm walking in the air, as my guest is the singer and presenter, Alid Jones. Alid has been a household name since the 1980s. Everyone remembers his hit song, From the Snowman, which reached number five in the UK charts, but by that stage in his career, he'd already released 12 albums. He'd recorded three flagship TV programmes for the BBC, resulting in two albums that sold over a million copies. At one point, both albums were in the top five official UK album charts. It was only Bruce Springsteen's album, Born in the USA, that kept him off the top spot. His recording career was temporarily halted when his voice broke at 16. By this time, he'd recorded 16 albums, sold more than 6 million of them, and sang for Pope John Paul II, the Queen, and the Prince and Princess of Wales in a private recital, as well as presenting numerous children's television programmes. Alid went on to study at the Royal Academy of Music and Bristol Old Vic Theatre School before being asked to perform the role of Joseph in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He continued to sing, of course, and started presenting. And in his very full career, he's been a DJ on BBC Radio 2, Classic FM and BBC Radio Wales. 
He's presented Friday Night is Music Night, sat in for regular daily presenters Sir Terry Wogan, Ken Bruce and Steve Wright, played the lead role of Caractacus Potts in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, appeared in Strictly Come Dancing, starred in London's West End in White Christmas, released two singles with Sir Terry Wogan in aid of the Children in Need appeal, collaborated on a number of hit albums with the singer Russell Watson, written three books, hosted his own TV show called Weekend every Saturday and Sunday morning on ITV, presented Escape to the Country, The One Show and Cash in the Attic for the BBC and co-presented ITV's breakfast show Daybreak. He's also presented Songs of Praise, published his autobiography, appeared on The Masked Singer and released three albums in the One Voice series, singing duets with his younger soprano voice self. And thanks to the wonders of technology, he's just about to release One Voice Full Circle, the fourth and probably the last album in this series, and he will be touring his show Full Circle. In fact, we talk about the album and the tour in this episode. In 2014, Alad was nominated as an honorary fellow of the Royal Academy of Music, following his MBE in the 2013 Honours List. I wonder what he does with his copious spare time. Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the very lovely Alid Jones. Alid, how lovely to see you. And you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, not at all. I'm very excited. I really am. You are one of those people that, because of, well, like all these things, longevity. Longevity means that you're probably one of the best-known names in the country. It's uh, it's a mad thing, isn't it? Because I forget Crazy. really that I've been doing it for a long time. But, you know, um, it's, it's a good thing as well. <laughs> well, it's lovely, isn't it? And you've got this... Is it the third or fourth One Voice album? It's the, oh, let me get this right now. One, two, I think it's the fourth. The fourth. Yeah, the fourth and probably the final as well. The uh, ah, final right. one as well. Um, yeah. and, and literally, you know, again, it, it came as a a fluke, really. I hadn't planned to do a fourth one. And, uh, I went back home and my mum and dad, they don't have a shrine or anything like that, but they have a, a room and a few drawers. They have a shrine, you know. <laughs> they certainly don't. Um, and, and it's just a drawer full of memorabilia. And there were these very dodgy, multicolored, different bow ties and shirts. And I thought, what's the story behind these? And they said, oh, a lady in the BBC made them for you for a series. Um, you did. And I didn't remember the series. Uh, managed to a friend of mine to check it out on BBC Archive. And there it was, you know, 1984 or whatever. Wow. Um, so we managed to find it, get the audio, get back in the studio and record duets with my young voice. That's amazing. It gives you an idea, though, of how many things you were doing at that time, that in fact that you just have no memory of it at all, almost. Well, and this happens all the time. Um, someone said to me the other day, oh, you signed to Virgin Records? And I was like, yes. And then I suddenly kind of thought, I was in the streets, I thought, why did I sign to Virgin, I wonder? And it hit me out of the blue that the reason I signed to Virgin Records was because a cassette that the BBC had released of me singing mm. two, three years previously had been given to Richard Branson's father, and he used it in the car when he wanted a cigarette. So I was actually charged with stopping Richard Branson's dad from smoking. <laughs> so every time he felt stressed or he was going to like go mad... He'd put on my cassette and it would calm him down. So he told Richard, you should sign this little boy. He's good for your health. And that was the reason. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Good job it wasn't aversion therapy. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, so, you know, all these little stories kind of, I forget because, you know, it was 16 albums in four years. And so yeah. it was pretty, pretty hectic, really. 
Yeah, for a young man, a young yeah. boy coming through. And then also, I remember at the time thinking about this, the thing that we all go through, all men go through, but you had that thing in front of you. My voice is going to break. Yeah. And, and you have this extraordinary career going on, but it's limited, you think. Well, I wanted it to be limited as well because, you know, right. the voice break meant I was going to have a normal adult as well. <laughs> Uh, yeah. There were occasions when I was recording, I think I was recording the theme tune to Santa Claus the movie with Dudley Moore, where I think it was someone like Henry Mancini shouted, get the knife, I'll do the operation here. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so by the time I was uh, sort of 15 and a half, I was ready to, you know, do something else, really. You know, um, mm. I knew that I couldn't be a boy soprano forever, and I didn't really want to be. No, but it's lovely that uh, having done that, because I, I remember the advice at the time was always, or oh, when your voice breaks, you should not sing you should hold off for a bit yeah in order to let your voice mature uh i think that maybe one of the reasons i've got such a gruff voice is that i remember going from the choir singing not very good treble to uh it suddenly it broke and they went you've got to keep plowing on through this we need you to sing it was the church <laughs> choir of course so you know well, you've got a great voice now so there you go it's it's worked now, for you hasn't it <laughs> well but it's lovely listening to i've listened to little extracts which is all you can get at the moment but uh, i can't wait to hear the whole thing and i i've i've always liked listening to the two of you sing and i say the two of you because you're very different people obviously yeah and but you know what it, it's the, the feeling and the emotion and stuff i had as a kid I didn't realize had slowly but surely come back as an adult. And when I first went into the studio and sang, I think the first song we did for the Warm Voice Project was Eris Gay Love Lilt. And you could tell it was the same person singing both. So, you know, <laughs> that was, it was a magical moment actually for me and my, my producer as well. But, you know, to actually make these albums is really tricky. Mm. You know, you have to take the vocal away from the original recording, which was probably mono we have now a, a system that can take some of the backing away from it. And it's, it's a real labor of love. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing things, isn't it? They're doing that with, um, with John Lennon's voice, I think at the moment, aren't they just about to release a uh, single? Yeah. And it takes forever. And then, you know, I'm very hands-on in uh, the arrangements and when little Aled sings and when old Aled <laughs> sings and, 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 you know, when we sing together as well. And, and what's been lovely with this project is that it's basically come from TV footage. So, all the pieces of music that we are on the album, we also have video footage for them all as well. So, Oh, yeah, you can make wonderful videos of it. Yeah, and it's like going back in time. It's a real time uh, capsule, you know. How appropriate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I like about it the best, Alid? And you may not even notice that you're doing it, but actually quite often you take the second role. You step back. You allow little Alid to take the lead and you accompany him. And I think that's fantastically generous. Well, that's what it's all about for me. You know, it's it's um, acknowledging the past and also realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that I wouldn't probably be doing what I'm doing now if it hadn't been for what I did as a kid. So, you know, um, and also it's a real pleasure. You know, I remember the first time I performed it live in the Royal Albert Hall and little Alice's voice came soaring out and I stood there on stage and all the memories of the years and the hundreds of performances I've given there just came flooding back. You know, it was like somebody mm. was on Rewind. Uh, almost so that I forgot to come in as an adult, but um, you know, but you know, it's been a real privilege to be able to relive these old moments. Lovely, 
Well, we're going to try and relive some more old moments. I do miss you on Radio 2, I have to say. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I loved my time at Radio 2. Equally, you know, I love what I do at Classic now as well. Um, But Mm. yeah, it was a very happy time on Radio 2. And also just to be, have the opportunity to, you know, sit in for people like Terry Wogan and Sarah Kennedy and Ken Bruce, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I was so fortunate that I was there, for me anyway, at the golden time of Radio 2, you know, when, my goodness me, you'll never get the likes of those broadcasters all together again, will you? No, I think it takes a a lot of experience for people to get to that point. And you can see that with Ken Bruce having moved over and just getting the most amazing figures. Isn't it, Jess? Yeah, the most ever, I think, isn't it? Um, In a rage or quarter or whatever. Yeah, but he deserves it. You know, he, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) He's a very lovely man. Yeah, he is. I asked him to do us a favour, and he did it almost instantly. And I I don't really know why he's so generous. But I said to him, could you do a little... Do you know, like, when Morecambe and Wise used to have those people saying, but I I appeared on this programme and uh, now look at my career. Those things. (laughs) Uh, Basically, I asked him to do one of those, to say, even when I was on my time capsule and, uh, you know, my career's just fallen away since. Yeah, I'm on Greatest Hits Radio now, for goodness sake. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And he just recorded it. It was very funny, and he said it straight back to us. It was No, he's a a good guy. But, you know, being there as as a relative youngster compared to them, I suppose I'm allowed to to say and you know terry and things like that i just realized how what an art it was what they did you know um mm. i sometimes now i'm in the studio with people that are of course younger than me and and they panic a lot really when when you when actually all radio is is talking to people and you know if there are fluffs then you deal with it and you go with it you know i, I said to my producer on classic the other day you know um you know, how many times did Wogan crash the pips, you know? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, but you never you never felt listening to it, oh, he's crashed the pips, you, you loved it because you of made course. a thing of it, you know? And the amount of times when I'd be on air sitting in for Sarah Kennedy or something like that, when Terry would walk in, usually about five minutes before his show started, and he'd throw some item of food at me, either a packet of mints or a muffin or whatever, usually hit me in the head whilst I was on air, you know, and you'd think, oh, yeah, there's only about seven million people listening. Amazing. You did some extraordinary things with him over the years, didn't you? Didn't you do some stuff for Children in Need, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We, we sang a couple of duets together, uh, one of which actually went to number two in the charts and was a bigger hit than Walking in the Air, but no one mentions that. But, yeah, Terry. Terry, Terry was unique, you know. I was very fortunate to know him from the age of 12 when mm. I had, as he said, the dubious honour of being on his chat show, Wogan, more than any other guest in its history. I went on seven times. Wow. And Terry was a, a dear friend of mine, you know. Um, we joked that I was his radio son and he was my radio dad um, <laughs> because I learned such a lot from him and I spent hours and hours in his company. So, you know, yeah, it was. I was actually there the, the morning that he officially retired and, and did mm. his speech, you know, and uh, my goodness me, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. No. Great man. A great man, great broadcaster. I mean, astonishing. Yeah. There'll never be another. No. How brilliant. All right, well, let's, let's look at some of those things then that will take us back okay. into the past or recent past. I don't mind, but uh, it, yeah. it's up to you to choose the things you'd like to have in a time capsule. Well, um, I've gone for quite obvious, massive ones, if that's all right. <laughs> and, and and the first one I've put in simply because I wouldn't be able to survive without it, and that's music. Mm-hmm. And by music, I mean all kinds of music. I remember as a boy being a 
seen by some of my colleagues as a bit of a freak um, because I listened to everything. Yeah. You know, I would listen to Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2, but I would equally listen to Billy Joel. I would listen to Queen's Greatest Hits. I would listen to Andy Williams singing Solitaire. So, um, <laughs> you know, I remember sort of getting up on weekends or waking up at weekends and my mum and dad would have the radio on and it would be all kinds of music. And for me, from a very young age, that's what I was interested in. I wasn't just interested, you know, people had this vision that I would only listen to classical music and that was complete rubbish. I knew more probably about the top 40 than I did about classical music. Yeah, yeah. It's just that I, happen, I happened to sing classical music more. Mm. Um, so for me, what's always made me tick, the thing I turned to in all those big moments in life, be it happiness, sadness, death, life, whatever, is music. Mm. You know, my mum tells a story of me being a, a little kid and she'd be bathing me or drying my hair. And you're going to think I'm a right freak now, but um, <laughs> I would find the music in those things. So the running water of the tap going into the bath would have a note Mm. or would have two notes, and I would create music around that. Equally, the hairdryer drying my hair would go... <laughs> and I would be harmonising with this whilst it was going on. I was only probably about two and a half years old. Um, <laughs> so for me, music was always there. It, yes. was, uh, it was basically the same as breathing for me. Mm. Isn't it interesting that, in fact, that very early influence is exactly what we were talking about? You almost certainly, your parents would be listening to Radio 2. Yeah. Which, again, is that eclectic, varied source of music. Yeah. But, in fact, I think I grew up with, absolutely, my father every morning would put on Radio 2. And so I go from Jolson right through to, you know, well, a, a, as far as the Carpenters, almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you lucky, lucky boy. Um, yeah, it's true. And, and also my, my mum and dad also had, you know, um, Radio Cymru, which was um, Welsh radio as mm -hmm. well. Um, and so I'd be hearing all these Welsh bands and Welsh male voice choirs and stuff as well. So, yeah, it was a, a real mixed bag. And, and that's what I love, you know, even now. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm, I'm actually quite proud that my children are the same. They listen to everything. Um, but I think young kids these days, they do. You know, they're not shoehorned into one type of music. They, no. they listen to everything. And, and, you know, my MP3 player or whatever you call it these days um, uh, has everything from Eminem to Charles Aznavour, you know. So mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah. I, if it's a good piece of music, I'm interested in it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a wonderful thing, I think, actually, when you think about young people, is that they have that great history of those songs and that sort of music. Because actually, unless you, of course, include all the 20s and the, the musical songs and all those sort of songs as well, going through the war and everything, but actually talking about the history of rock and roll, it's now... 70 years old. Yeah. But, you know, even you mentioned the war and, you know, I was very fortunate in my career, probably about many years now, maybe five or six years back to, you know, I've just duetted with my young self, but I was very mm. lucky to go into the studio and duet with Dame Vera Lynn uh -huh. on something like, you know, as time goes by. And, you, you, and those songs were created for a reason, you know, they were, they're stirring songs, they're songs that bring out an emotion in mm -hmm. you. And, and that's what I love about music, that you can be feeling pretty rubbish or whatever, and you put on a piece of music and everything changes. You know, I saw a clip recently, um, 
again on social media or whatever it was, of a daughter taking her father to the doctor and he had really bad dementia and all this sort of business and all of a sudden a piece of music comes on the radio Mm. and he is singing along with the music, you know, remembering all the words from 50 years ago or whatever and you just think, that's power. Yes. Where would we be without music? Yes. It is astonishing when that happens, isn't it? When you hear something, start joining in with it and then realise you haven't heard it for 45 years. And it can take you back to an occasion, you know. Um, for me now, when, when you know, I did my first project singing with myself, you know, singing in the Albert Hall and hearing that piece for the first time, it literally, I could tell you the moments that I performed there as a kid and, and you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, music has an amazing power, I think. Yes. And that's a very personal experience, isn't it? That strange circular corridor at the back and then you, you come out and then you, you walk up the ramp onto the stage. Yeah, there's no hall like it. It's an amazing place, isn't it? Well, one of the highlights of my career, I suppose, was there's a huge mural in the Albert Hall. Um, and basically it's got all the people that have performed in the Albert Hall sort of over a hundred times or whatever. And I'm there on the mural, you know, a tiny little me. Good Lord. Sandwiched in between two amazing world-renowned conductors, Mm. you know. And I just think to myself, wow, they can never take that away from me, you know. it's, it's. I remember the first time I performed there, I was a guest, um, a surprise guest. I was 12 years old for the Welsh Thousand Voices concert. So they had, you know, a thousand male voice uh, voices. um, And I came on as a guest, was introduced. And then I found myself coming off stage and being in the bull run, all on my own, lost. Mm. Didn't know where I was. Mum and dad were watching it live. Everyone else was involved in the concert. And there I was on my own as this man came bounding towards me. And I I was taken aback. I thought, my goodness me, what's happening? (laughs) And it was quite a large gentleman. And he was in floods of tears. And he said, you've just changed my life. You were amazing. And I was like, oh, thank you very much. I was quite embarrassed. (laughs) And he tried to shove some money into my hand. And I went, oh, no, I'm fine. I don't need it. I don't need it. (laughs) And he was crying his eyes out. And he shoved the the money in my hand and ran off in the opposite direction in the bull run, never to be seen again. And I sort of, you know, by then my mum and dad had come backstage and people were there. What happened? What happened? I said, explain the situation. And I looked in my pocket and it was two £50 notes. Good Lord. And, you know, coming from North Wales, I'd yes. never seen anything more than a fiver. <laughs> and I was like sort of taken aback, you know, and uh, the next day, where did I end up? Hamleys. <laughs> so, I bet, you yeah. know, that was my first, my first Royal Albert Hall experience. So, uh, yeah, and since then, there have been, been many where I've sung I've, uh, and I've presented as well. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been a, it's, it's, for me, it's the greatest hall in the world. But sadly, nobody's ever come up and given you 50 pound notes. No, not anymore. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if only. I had one other Albert Hall story, if you've got time. And that's, I've got uh, plenty of time. I once presented the Whiteman Cup, which was a tennis tournament mm. between the American women and the British women invariably uh, in the 90s, whatever, the American women would come over and hammer the British women. So the competition, (laughs) I think, is no more. Um, But one year it was in the Albert Hall. So they take out the seats in the ground level and they put one tennis court in there. Mm. And I was presenting it. God knows why. And um, I was only, I think, 17 at the time, uh, something like that. And one morning 
uh, Zena Garrison, who was the American tennis player, was number four in the world at the time, was practicing. And she said, hey, someone tells me you fancy yourself as a bit of a tennis player. And I was like, well, you know, since my voice broke and I play five hours a day and was business, and I thought I was pretty decent. Yeah. And she said, bring your kit tomorrow. We'll have a game in the morning. <laughs> and so the next morning at something like 7.30 in the morning, I was on the court with Zena Garrison with her telling me where she was hitting the ball. And she was so good, I still couldn't get it back. Uh, she, I think she beat me six love. And then I had the mad idea, or maybe she had the mad idea, of, you know those um, discs in the ceiling of the Albert Hall? Yeah, the sound buffers, aren't they? They're there to improve the sound quality, yeah. Exactly. Well, I was then told about five years ago that I'd ruined the sound quality of the Albert Hall for the last 30 years because Zena Garrison and I managed to get two tennis balls in them. <laughs> We spent about an hour knocking balls from the stage area of the Albert Hall into those discs. <laughs> and about six years ago, I was about to go on stage and present Songs of Praise, big sing from the Albert Hall. Mm. And the boss came up to me and said, oh, we just took the discs down for the first time in 20 years, whatever, to clean. And we found two tennis balls in one of them and a pair of false teeth. And I went, the teeth were nothing to do with me. <laughs> That's old Zena. She's famous uh-huh. for them. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, the two balls were definitely us. Uh, but, yeah, lots of fun. Oh, God, what an experience. It's so funny when you're in those places when nobody else is there. I always think yeah. that it's the joy of all theatres, I think. For anybody who has the, has the great privilege to perform on a stage, it's the best feeling in the world being on a stage when the place is empty, I think. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I've been to some of my concerts where it's been empty as well and it should have been full, but <laughs> that's not a great experience. No. Um, but yeah, it is. And do you know what? It must be old age with me because, and even thinking about doing this with you... I feel like a lot of my career, I've just been there, done it, and not really taking it in, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I've been so lucky over the years to have these amazing experiences. And even through Songs of Praise, you know, doing a, an overnight shoot somewhere like Westminster Abbey, where we have the Abbey just to ourselves, you know, and, mm. and, and places like the Vatican. Uh, it was an overnight shoot with Harry Seacombe in the Vatican. We were miming for his TV show, Highway. But I never forget Harry saying... Okay, you fancy yourself as a bit of a singer? Let's see who can hit the highest note and get it to stay the longest in the Vatican. And so there was Harry and I belting top Gs and As and Bs and just hearing the acoustic just take those notes and leave it there in the ether. And you think to yourself, I remember it, but do I remember it well enough? You know, and it's because I was on to the next thing constantly. Mm. Um, Whereas now when I can look back, it's, um, yeah, so many amazing memories. Well, you're touring, aren't you? Are you going to be talking as well in between singing yeah, songs? Well, this is um, the, the big tour. Um, gosh, I've never done one uh, this week. I'm doing 77 dates uh, next year. Right. And then uh, probably some more the following year as well, which haven't been announced yet, but you're the first to know about that. Um, but, yeah, the 77 dates, it's, it's more or less a, an evening with. I'm going to be singing about six songs. Um, some I'll accompany myself, which I've never done before. But primarily it's sort of... There's no one interviewing me, but so it's uh, an evening with, but I'll front the whole thing, you know, and mm. I just tell some stories that have never been told before, really. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. And, of course, the great thing about that is that you can if you want to. It's your show. If you suddenly think, I've forgotten about that, what an interesting story that is. If something occurs to you, as it does when we're doing this sort of thing, you can do it. Yeah, and everything will be uh, generated by photos. So I have a huge screen behind uh. me, and I'll... 
click from one photo to another and and that generally then brings up memories and and lots mm. of the well I would say that 99% of the photos are from my archive so they won't have been seen before amazing i'm looking forward to it because it's something new you know i've not done that yeah. ever before so it seems now at the age of 52 why not <laughs> but you've got that you know i mean all the presenting you've done and all the the radio work that you've done that ability just to talk to people has developed into quite a skill i think so it's well worth using it well i i always believe and it was always terry terry organ that said this to me actually the longer you do it the better you get at it and yeah. you know um he also came out with a line that said spread yourself as thinly as possible because it makes it more difficult for people to get rid of you <laughs> so so maybe that's what i've done you know i do the singing the tv the radio you name it um but yeah I, i'm a firm believer in you know if you're interviewing someone all you need to do is listen and know your research and yeah with the presenting if you're on stage like in the Albert Hall where I had to keep 5,000 people entertained in between shots I think mm. that's just part of being a performer so I'll always you know a lot of people say oh you should have done stand-up and uh, maybe this tour will give me <laughs> a little bit of an opportunity to do that that's another one to to tick off the list yeah exactly indeed. well we're definitely going to put music of all kinds into the time capsule as your first thing Alan good so let's uh, let's move on and see what number two is right it's time to take a short ad break to help to pay for the making of this podcast but I will be back with more from Alan in next to no time cheers Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back. As promised, the time we've been away is pretty much adjacent to no time. Clearly, it's some time, but not too much time, I hope. Anyway, let's not waste any more of it. Let's hurry back to the lovely Alan Jones and the rest of his time capsule items. Uh, number two is whales. Marvellous. What gorgeous creatures they are. Well, yes, yeah, some would say, <laughs> some would say not. Um, I, and I wanted to put whales in because... I feel a little bit bad. You know, I'm a Welsh speaker. I, I was taught at school through the medium of Welsh up until I was 15. 
But, you know, as a teenager, I couldn't wait to go down to the bright lights of London. You know, I was lucky I went down to London most weekends anyway. My great uncle lived here and I was always working down here. And London for me was where it's at. And I still love London, don't get me wrong. But Mm. as I've got older, every time I go back to Wales, I just think to myself, this place is magic, you know. And where I'm from in Wales, it... I, I don't think I'm bad in saying that there wasn't much going on when I was a kid. No. So is that Anglesey? Yeah. Most of the clothes yes. I wore as a kid were from the only shop in Bangor, Burton's. Um, <laughs> whereas now, you know, North Wales, Anglesey is the foodie capital of wherever, really. You know, people have realised that the produce that we have there is the best in the world, um, from oysters to mussels to salt to you name it, you know. And and I'm very proud of the fact that we've upped our game in that way, really, and put Wales on the map as being not just the land of song, but also the land where, you know, if you want natural good produce, that's where you come, really. And and, and now when I go back to Wales, you know, I, I sit in my mum and dad's garden and... I just feel all pressure just drip off my shoulders, really. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's an incredible feeling, really. Or I'm out on my dad's boat fishing with him. It's, yeah, it, the thing I couldn't wait to get from when I was a teenager, I can't wait to get to now. <laughs> and I, I love the fact also that Wales is known as the land of song. You know, wherever you go in the world. I remember my first trip to Australia, I said on a radio show, Oh, you know, I don't know if there are any male voice choirs. And, and the guy went, well, actually, there are four in Sydney, <laughs> four different oh, really? male voice choirs. And by the end of the program, <laughs> I'd been invited back to sing with them all, you know. And, and so wherever you are in the world, there are always Welsh more than happy to sing, you know. Um, and it's unique. It is unique, absolutely. And that sound of a, a male voice choir is completely unique, isn't it? It's an amazing. What I love about that is it's all inclusive, that you will have people amongst those men who have extraordinary voices and really top quality tenors and basses. Yeah. And you'll also have men who can just sing along. Yeah. And that blend of the different voices is what gives it its quality, I think. Absolutely. I remember interviewing Gareth Edwards uh, for a TV show and he said that when they were on the rugby pitch playing for Wales and they heard Callan Lan being sung from the stands and all of a sudden 70,000 people are singing it. He said, you might as well have given us three points on the board straight away because (laughs) the energy that it created. And I had a little feel of that myself, you know. I remember singing the Welsh National Anthem in the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff before Wales went on to beat England in the rugby and doesn't happen very often, I know, but um, (laughs) it happened that night and uh, yes, we had to carry my dad back to his hotel room. Um, And I remember singing and all of a sudden my cheeks were shaking, my body was shaking, my legs were shaking and it wasn't nerves, it was I could feel the energy of the crowd hit me. It was like a warm wave of something, breath I suppose, but you could feel it, you know, literally hit you and I I was not in control of that performance at all, you know, but it Mm. was, what a highlight, it was amazing and uh, you know, I say that's a highlight. The other time I sang in the Millennium Stadium, I sang quite a few times in the rugby, but there was one other time where they asked me to sing in a charity shield match between my beloved Arsenal and Chelsea. And <laughs> I had to keep quiet to everyone that I was an Arsenal fan. It wasn't in the programme or anything because they didn't want to stir anything up. And no. it's a very, very lonely walk, let me tell you, from the touchline to the centre circle 
in the Millennium Stadium when you're about to sing. And the gentleman said, and now to sing the national anthem. And I started walking onto the pitch thinking, this is going to be fine. Everyone loves me, sort of thing. Um, he went, <laughs> Arsenal fan, Alan Jones. No! <laughs> and half the stadium would just go, boo, you rubbish! <laughs> <laughs> it was it's frightening. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, Just <laughs> awful. I hope you sang 1-0 to the Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been there on the North Bank when that's happened many a time. Uh, the uh, days of uh, George Graham and Bruce Rioch. And uh, actually, I, I, one of the highlights of my... I would say teenage years happened on the North Bank in Arsenal. I used to stand just behind uh, David Seaman's goal. Uh, and of course, we were all standing then in the North Bank. And mm. all of a sudden, about 10 or 15 people started a chant, which was taken up by the whole of the North Bank. And they all were going, Alla Jones, Alla Jones, you're not singing anymore. I was only 18 <laughs> years old and it was like, wow, I can die and go to heaven. That is very funny, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, the feeling you get also in stadiums like the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, you know, it could only be a Welsh stadium. And I know other other countries have singing and stuff like that, but it's nothing to compare with the feeling you get when you're in that stadium or even in Cardiff as a city, you know, there's always, every pub has music, every, you know, it's the, I suppose, the equivalent of Dublin having Temple Bar and the violin and the fiddle and everyone playing. But in Wales, mm. wherever you go, people just want to sing. Yes. I mean, I haven't been to North Wales for a long time. And in fact, my wife comes from Oswestry, so very near oh, okay. yes. North Wales. So in her soul, she feels fairly Welsh. And my mother-in-law is also Welsh, but oh, okay. she's South Wellian. We never mention her anyway. <laughs> she doesn't count, no. No, it's funny, you know, I've always been very proud of Wales. And wherever I go in the world, I, I promote Wales because that's who I am. Every album I sing on, there's always one track in Welsh that always yeah. has been. And I, I'm very proud that we have our own language. I'm proud that the country, especially North Wales, is so beautiful. You know, Snowdonia and, you know, and, and as a kid, I suppose, I didn't really take it in. You know, I took it for granted. The fact that, you know, weekends I could be on the boat with my dad fishing or up in the mountains. And I'm glad that my children have been able to have that really. And, you know, for them, it's, especially when they were much younger, of course, you know, they come from London, central London, where we live. And all of a sudden, they'd be surrounded by, you know, my mum and dad's garden. They'd be like, God, we can just go run? I said, yeah, just do what you want, you know. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I regaled to them stories of, you know, my mum used to shove a jam sandwich in cellophane in my pocket in the morning, and I'd jump on my bike, and it would be, see you later. Mm. And later meant when it got dark. And, you know, and, and when it got dark, I'd go home, and there I'd have my tea. But... During the day, I'd be climbing trees, okay, we'd be stealing apples or whatever, and, uh, you know, and just playing football. It was such a free upbringing. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes wish that my children had had that, really, but at least they've had it with their grandparents. Mm. But then they discovered that you could sing, and suddenly there's a real discipline to becoming a chorister, isn't there? Oh, there is, yeah, and, you know, they had to give up so much. Um, this kind mm. of leads me into the next thing that I want to put in the time capsule, actually, if I can move on. Yes, well, we will definitely put Wales in there. And I have to say that when those moments happen and when you hear the Welsh crowd singing in the Millennium Stadium, as an Englishman, I say, I really wish I was Welsh. 
Yeah, swing low, sweet chariot, just doesn't do it, I'm afraid. It doesn't cut it, does it? No, not really. I've, no. I've said that to Lawrence Delalio, he nearly punched me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for your sake, I hope that Wales win the World Cup. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it happening. But um, but you have those extra three points, always. Well, let's hope so in France as well. Um, mm. But, you know, for me, when I do look back on Wales, I look back on family as well. And that's also what I'd like to put into the capsule because I would never be where I am now without the support I've had from my mum and dad, but also from my wife and children um, and our extended family. You know, I, I again, took my mum and dad for granted you know, my mum was a primary school teacher. My dad was an engineer working in an aluminium smelter. And all of a sudden, and I mean all of a sudden, their son was releasing albums, m- mixing with royalty and A-list celebrities, which mm. meant that their life was changed beyond belief. My father is the shyest man in the world. He is at his happiest when he's in the garden or sailing his boat. Mm. He doesn't need anyone except his family. He's not a people person. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. So, you know, for him to every weekend be in London mixing with, you know, one minute Boy George, the next minute, you know, some film director, the next minute somebody else. And, you know, it must have been hell on earth for him, really, because, you know, he's such a private man. And and I also forget that they were probably in their 30s when all this was happening. And, right, yeah. you know, here we were going to Rome, to the Vatican, to the Hollywood Bowl, to Japan, all these places. And they just had to, A, find time off from their work. Mm. You know, and, and I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's a, an accompanist in Wales, probably one of the greatest piano players Wales has ever produced, Annette Brim Parry. And she used to accompany me on some television shows in, in Wales, of course, but also mm. in places like Germany. And... We once got invited, you know, my dad got a phone call at work from somebody very well spoken and he thought it was somebody at work teasing him, so put the phone down. Uh, and it, it just so happened that it was Prince Charles asking <laughs> if I'd go down to sing in Kensington Palace for him privately, you know. And, and so there I was with my mum, who was a primary school teacher in Llandegvan, and Annette Brimparry, who was a piano teacher and played on television in Wales and stuff. There the three of us were in Kensington Palace in Charles and Diana's private room, Mm. giving a recital and talking to them. And you just think to yourself, this must have been mad for them as well (laughs) as mad for me. And so, you know, with family, I think I've taken definitely mum and dad for granted when I was younger, of course. But, you know, they're still sounding boards for me. My wife is still a sounding board. She helped with what I'd put in the capsule. and, Mm. And, you know, I think that, However many times in my life I've sort of fought against wanting their input or whatever, uh, I've come to the conclusion as I get older that they're always right. And (laughs) without them, I definitely wouldn't have had the career I had. You know, my wife, she didn't bring the kids up single-handedly. I was here, but I was also away a lot. So, And she never made a fuss or anything like that. So I'm very, very lucky to have the family I have um, behind me supporting me. And and your parents and your wife must have had a, a very subtle and quiet way of just keeping you in check. I mean, yeah. because uh, particularly your parents at that time, as you say, suddenly there it is, this extraordinary change in your life. And you're being invited to sing at the most incredible places with the most amazing people. 
And as I said earlier, with the prospect that that's going to end, or do I want to do this? I'm now stuck in it. Can I get out of it? All mm-hmm. those things are going on in your young mind. And you could very easily have just gone off the rails, as it were. You could have gone, well, you know, I'm important. Everybody loves me. But it didn't happen. I hope so. It's to your credit as well, Alid, but clearly their influence must have made a big difference, I think. Yeah, I think, well, you know, they made me go back to comprehensive school, which meant that I would keep quiet about everything I did at the weekend. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, I'd get a black eye. Um, And Wogan always joked that whenever I went on the show, I'd get beaten up. So (laughs) he was probably right, actually. But you see, that's Um, an example of the sort of decisions they made uh, for you in your life that were important. I mean, the the idea, no, you're going to continue going to this school, when in fact, probably the chances are you could have easily said, well, it'd be much easier if I just had a tutor. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, but there wasn't such a thing available in North Wales at the time, (laughs) you know, and that's what was lovely about doing what I did when I did it, because Mm. there wasn't a blueprint no. No one else had done it. So we were making it up as we went along. And I remember my mum and dad and I just, you know, almost deciding that, hey, we'll just have a laugh. <laughs> and that's what we did, you know. And so much so, you know, I'd come home from school and we'd sit down and have tea. Mum done tea, dad come from homework. And they'd go, oh, you've had an invitation to do this. And I'd be like, oh, right, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Okay, we'll tell them. And and that was it. (laughs) And my big Homer Simpson moment, honestly, is, you know, the doe moment is that I was singing the Hollywood Bowl. I'd sung the first night, and unbeknownst to me, Johnny Carson had been there, who was the biggest talk show host in the world at the time. Yeah, huge. So the second night, I sang in the Hollywood Bowl. I came off stage singing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, and two ladies came backstage and said, oh, we're from the Johnny Carson show. Um, he came last night and basically he wants to devote his whole show to you. So you'd sing four songs and he'd interview you for an hour. And, oh, I was like, oh, okay. And mum and dad looked at me and went, oh, okay. And <laughs> they said, oh, when is that? And they'd say, oh, next week. And I went, oh, but we're going home day after tomorrow. Mm. And they went, well, can't you extend it? And sort of everyone around me was saying, oh, we're looking to extending, we're looking to extending. And I'd just never forget, they went. And I said to my mum and dad, but we've got a football match over <laughs> the weekend with my school. And I said, and I miss my girlfriend. And, you know, they went, yeah, and, you know, we've got to get back to work. Now we'll just turn it down. And so we turned down Johnny Carson to go home because David Hughes Comprehensive had a football match. You know, it's just madness. (laughs) The thing that launched the Beatles in America. Yes, I would have been hanging out with Macaulay Culkin or whoever. (laughs) Maybe a good thing you didn't. Well, exactly. You know, so, and I look back on that now and some would go, oh, what an opportunity lost. But I actually just go, do you know what? Whatever. Yeah. These things, if they happen, they happen. If they don't, there's no point sort of lamenting, I think. And, and there's, a, there's a great danger of doing that in this industry, of looking at what other people are doing and, and sort of getting boiled down in that. Whereas for me, I always try and move things on and try mm. different things. Um, that way it keeps it fresh for me. Yes. If you're happy in that world that you've come to and you look back on your life and think to yourself, well, I've done some amazing things, most of which I don't think about most of the time. I just get on with what I'm doing. Yeah. And if you're happy doing that, then I think you've succeeded. I, I think so. And, and you know, now as I get older, I suppose I'm allowed to look back almost like a sort of a proud grandfather on stuff <laughs> I've done. You know, I think, about, I think about sort of concerts I did with Leonard Bernstein, for instance, and... Uh you know, the movies coming out now and everyone's going on about Maestro. And, you know, I had an amazing 
personal relationship with Leonard Bernstein, who was mad as a hatter, you know, and <laughs> the fun we had on and off stage was just like incredible. So, you know, I've been very, very lucky to have these memories that no one can really take off me. No, that is funny, isn't it? Because if you remember the West Side Story documentary that they did, he was so... Horrendous. Oh, my word. Jose Carreras, he just wouldn't leave alone, would he? I watched that about three weeks before I was supposed to meet him. And our first meeting was in the Barbican in one of the rehearsal rooms with the <laughs> London Symphony Chorus. And I remember they were about 80 strong. They were sitting down in this room, uh, one side of the wall. And then the other side of the wall was me, Richard Hickox, the uh, much misconductor, and a few other sort of, you know, bods and my mum and dad. And we were all waiting Leonard Bernstein to come in. And I was, to put it mildly, bricking it because I thought he might treat me like he did Jose Carreras mm. and he walked in only Bernstein would do this he walked in wearing a long black velvet cape <laughs> and he had his baton in his hand and he, he came over bounded over to me put me in a headlock tapped his baton on my head and went you young man I've been wanting to work with you for ages this is going to be amazing wow. and I was like Wah! and you know talking to him afterwards he had no idea how tough he was on Jose and all he wanted to do was he wanted something that he'd created to be exactly as he wanted it yeah. and I felt that in a way because you know our rehearsal in the Barbican was spent to be half an hour and I was singing the Chichester Psalms and my rehearsal with him went on for an hour and a half. <laughs> the London Symphony Chorus didn't get a look in. He just took me in a masterclass. He said, I'll never get this piece sounding like I want it again in my lifetime. I've never had it sounding like I wanted it before. So you're going to get it right for me. Wow. And that was it. And honestly, working with him was probably the greatest thing I did. It was, um, you know, I'd sit on stage and watch him on the podium. And it was like Harry Potter. When he put his baton down, you could see the sparks coming out of it, you know, and mm. the music that generated. And I was always second on, and I knew that my turn was coming because the first soloist would come to an end and then I would end the first half with Chichester Psalms. And, you know, I'd, I'd be ready backstage. And I'd know that my time was coming because Leonard Bernstein's personal assistant would put a towel over his arm <laughs> he'd light a cigarette in a cigarette holder put it in his mouth and he'd pour a massive scotch into a glass on the rocks <laughs> and Lenny would come off stage grab the towel wipe his face grab the cigarette go grab the scotch go whack grab me by the arm and go let's go kid wow and when I was a kid I just went I want to be him when I'm older yeah, I'll go anywhere <laughs> You just lead. Yeah, know. it was amazing. What an experience. What a thing to have done. I mean, anybody who's ever seen him conduct, it, it, it's so thrilling, isn't it? Oh, he's, he's amazing. And, you know, there'd be moments where I'd always use the copy because that was my comfort blanket. And we were rehearsing for a performance in the evening in front of the Queen. There were sniffer dogs everywhere. And I started, you know, my Adonai Roi, Adonai Roi, Loixar. And he... And he's conducting the orchestra and the chorus one-handed and he grabs the copy from my hands and takes it and went, don't you know it by now? And he's, the thing's still going on. You know, he's still <laughs> conducting the orchestra. And so I carry on singing my bit 
And then, you know, halfway through the piece, he offers the copy back to me and I went, nah, it's all right, I know it. And he was like, whoa, get it, Hugh. And so we'd have these conversations whilst he's conducting the full orchestra and chorus, you know. Fantastic, though. That's a sign of the inspiration of somebody like that, I think, that uh, he would have known that you would sing it better with the copy out of your hand. Yeah, at, what, or, at the end of the day, he didn't really care. But all <laughs> he wanted to do was, was test me all the time, you yeah. know, and, but also have fun. Whatever <laughs> he did, he, he seemed to have fun, you know, and, and that energy, as you say, came across in everything he did. But when he was on that podium, it was magic. Fantastic. Oh, Alan, I'm thinking of turning this into a series. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm boring you now, aren't I? No, no you're not boring stories. me at all. No, no. I mean, I, I, the, my mind went, I should move on. But my heart went, no, just ask another question. <laughs> Keep going. No, no, no. <laughs> it's so gorgeous to listen to you, I have to say. But we've only, we've come to the point now where we have to put family into the time capsule. Yes. Okay, so that's three things we've put in. Good. So we've got two left. Right, my fourth one is a short one, really. You'd be glad to know. Uh, but it's a memory. And it's a memory of my little dog. Uh, and I had a Bichon Frise uh, who sadly died just before COVID. Mm. And my goodness me, when they say that dogs are the life and soul of the family and the heartbeat of the family, he certainly was. And as a Bichon, I'm sure if some of your other listeners may have Bichons and they'll realise that they do this. But when they're really pleased to see you, they jump onto their back legs and they wave their front paws. <laughs> yes. And I just have this memory of whatever you're doing in life, however you're feeling in life, you come in through that front door and there's this creature, a ball of fluff, white fluff, just waving its front paws at you as if to say, you're the greatest thing in my world. Thank you for being here. Here's lots and lots of love. And I just think, you know, dogs are incredible in that respect. They, they also made the kids realise, you know, that they're not the be-all and end-all and there's somebody else that needs attention. And, and, you know, Cubby was loved by the family so much and he's so missed. You know, he, he unfortunately sort of got progressively worse over a short period of time, thankfully mm. for him. But, you know, and uh, we lost him, as I say, just before COVID. But my goodness me, what, um, what an incredible addition to our family he was. Yes. What an awful time to lose a dog as well then suddenly that period where in fact you're relying on each other well do you know what for him it was probably a good thing because he ended up getting diabetes going blind and it was all it was a, a catalogue of disaster over six months so i think that over covid it probably would have been very difficult for us to treat him as well and yeah and yeah you know cubby knew he knew everything the, i think dogs do know everything you know they know <laughs> when you're not well they know when you're stressed they know when you're happy and and he knew and uh yeah, but forever we will always have... We've got photos of him doing it anyway and videos, but, you know, my abiding memory would be you could come home in the worst mood ever. <laughs> and the minute you see that ball of fluff waving, <laughs> um, for that split second even, everything was right in the world, you know? Yes. I don't have a dog, but it's a wonderful thing to have a dog, I think, because not only does it give you that companionship and almost unbelievable devotion that they have towards you, yeah, which, which often is not warranted, I think, for some people. No. But they just give it anyway. And yet also you have a responsibility there that, um, as you say, with a family, particularly with children, is a very useful thing, that this dog has to be walked, this dog has to be fed. Absolutely. 
And I, the, the relationship my son especially had with the dog was so precious. Mm. You know, the dog would very often sleep uh, next to him. And um, yeah, it was, it, I, I think they're magic. You know, we'd love to get a dog again at some point, but lives at the moment don't really adhere to that, you know, because they do need your attention. And you know, yeah. the phrase, a dog is, is for life, not just for Christmas, is very, very true. But I would not have missed those moments uh, with Cubby for all the tea in China, they were magical, magical moments. Yeah, absolutely. In life, those moments of, and they are terrible moments of pain when those animals have to go. They're well worth it for the pleasure of it, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So uh, I'd love it if we can put Cubby waving into the uh, time capsule. <laughs> we can. <laughs> when it's first opened, there he'll be. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, what a great, what a, what a great welcome for people to open up. And, and then they get, they get whales and song as well. Indeed. A music going on. It's a, yeah. well, it's all. It's a, it's a nice capsule. It certainly is. Yes. We want to go in there. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have to put in there something that you'd like to bury and forget. Well, it's an interesting one, this. I tried really hard to think of something. And, you know, I went the obvious routes, as in cyclists in central London, <laughs> social media, uh, all these things. Um, but no, no, no. Um, and it's something that is relatively new for me. Um, in January this year, I decided to stop drinking alcohol. Um, I didn't really drink spirits a lot and beers occasionally, but I was a big wine drinker and I understand my wine and uh, I've got friends who've taught me uh, about the different grapes and stuff like that. And I sort of drank wine most days probably. Mm. Um, and I just thought that I'd kind of had enough of it. Um, and so I decided to give myself a year without the alcohol. And I've done eight and I've nearly done nine months now. And it's been a revelation. It's not easy. Uh, especially on occasions. Uh, and that's why I kind of put it in to the box as something I can forget because as we're now approaching Christmas, I realise that nearly everything we do is almost sold to us to have alcohol yeah. with it. Mm. So whether you're celebrating, whether you're commiserating, whether you've bought a new car, what do you do? Oh, you have a glass or something. And so everything is geared towards you. In this country especially, in America, which I travel to quite a bit with my daughter and her work now, it's not at all. Mm. And in other countries, I find it not at all. But here, it's really hard not to drink alcohol. Yes. I've been brought up in Wales. The pub is the place where everybody, that's where you get together. They are in church. Oh, 100%. And I'm not saying anything, there's anything wrong with it no. at all. But I felt that I was doing it just because it was habit almost. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, nine months in, I almost wake up in the morning a bit like Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. Um, you know, I feel fresh. It's funny, it, I feel amazing that I'm doing it, but equally, wherever I turn, it's forced upon us somehow. Yeah, yeah, the pressure. And I think that pressure is pretty rubbish, really. Mm, um, I agree. it shouldn't really be there. But I think, I, I think that's changing a lot as well because, you know, I see a lot now through young people, my, my kids' age and stuff, they don't use alcohol in the way that my generation did and maybe your generation did. Mm. And, and also what I get now is, are you all right? <laughs> yeah. And I say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And, and then they go, oh, I couldn't do that. I could never do that. And I was like, well, it's, yeah, there are moments, of course, you know, birthdays and we're coming up to Christmas, which should, won't be that easy, I shouldn't imagine. Mm. But I realised also that, you know, every event is somehow marked by it. Yes. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really weird 
thing, but actually quite exhilarating thing to do as well. Mm. And so, you know, January the 17th, will I go back to it? I probably won't, to be honest with you. But of course, you're in charge then. Actually, if you decide that on Christmas Day, you want to have a glass of champagne or on somebody's birthday, you will raise a glass. To them. Yeah, you can do that. But yeah. you also know that you can then put it down and, and drink something else. Yeah, exactly. And and I think with lockdown, the sun was out and invariably, you know, if, even if you didn't drink till six o'clock or seven o'clock, usually, you know, you were starting at five or four because um, there was nothing else to do. And I think a lot of people got down that rabbit hole, which wasn't wasn't particularly good. So, um, yeah, and I'm definitely not a, you know, an evangelical about it. I, you know, I'm I'm glad that I've done it over the years and I'm glad that, you know, I've experienced lovely wines and lovely restaurants and everything. But at the moment, I feel that I'm a better person without it. That's a big realisation, really. But what I suppose, it's not just alcohol in the capsule. It's, it's more or less how it's shoved down our throats in this country. Yeah, the pressure to drink. Yeah. If I went for dinner with friends in LA, no one would drink, probably. No. Because everyone, everyone drives there or something like that, probably, as well. Mm. But here, you go into the pub and you go, can I have a Coke Zero? They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you do have to pretend you're the designated driver or something, don't you? Do you know what you do? You do what I did. And my pride and joy in London now is I've got a battery-operated motorbike. Oh, right. And, it, oh, my goodness me, it's changed my life. The battery you take <laughs> out and you plug it into the wall, a bit like your phone. It's called a Maving bike. And it's two boys from university in Coventry or whatever bumped into a Triumph engineer who was retiring. And together they've put together this motorbike that looks like a Triumph. So it looks like a motorbike. Brilliant. And I use it all day, every day. Even we started this chat talking about the Royal Albert Hall I had no idea there's a car park underneath the Royal Albert Hall. I didn't know that. No cars really used, but, you know, the big trucks go down and all this sort of business. But there is a bike bay there. And so <laughs> my last concert in the Albert Hall, I left my house wearing my dinner jacket, helmet on, drove my bike underneath the Albert Hall, parked it there, walked up a flight of stairs, went straight on stage. <laughs> Doof, that's the way to do it. Alan, how fantastic it's been to listen to your amazing stories, and I'm sure that we could do four or five other recordings of this, and that you'd come up with just as interesting stories and many more. I can't wait to come and see you on tour. I think it'll be absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I I'm looking forward to it, and it's been lovely uh, reliving some of these memories with you as well, so thank you having me you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest alid jones thank you for taking the time out of your day or night well life anyway to listen to my time capsule we really appreciate it especially if you take a moment to subscribe and rate the show if you have any questions, then do get in touch with us on social media. That's both me and my time capsule, which is run by my producer and lovely son, John. We'd love to hear from you about anything. And maybe you'd like to suggest a guest you'd enjoy hearing on the podcast. Do get in touch. You can listen to the theme tune anytime on Spotify. It was composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music which is also John. John and I make a weekly bonus episode called My Time Capsule The Debrief, which is available to all Acast Plus listeners who also receive this podcast ad-free. Details in the description, as well as a link to Alid's new album, my favourite track of which is Panis Angelicus, beautiful from both Alids. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by the very busy and talented and aforementioned John Fenton-Stevens. I've been, 
well, lots of things really, but primarily Mike Fenton-Stevens. I also, and this is something I didn't tell Adam because I'm slightly embarrassed by it, once performed a parody of his hit Walking in the Air. Obviously in the days when my voice was um, a lot higher than it is now. Um, to give you a taste of the quality of this song, the final lyrics were, in falsetto, Suddenly, swooping low from a moonlit sky, a giant pair of testicles that could fly. I strapped them to my waist, stick them on with paste, and then attached them to my voice. And suddenly, the noise has changed. Yeah, I think you can probably guess where my falsetto voice went from there. I'm walking in the... Uh, yeah, sorry, Alid. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.